Frontier Church. Hey guys, this is part two of why are we so hungry for the Holy Spirit? And this episode, it's not going to make a ton of sense if you didn't listen to part one. So if that's you, make sure to go back and listen to why are we so hungry for the Holy Spirit part one. Because in that podcast episode, I, I told a couple key stories like like a breaking point that I reached earlier this year, like what in the heck happened during the Holy Spirit sermon series, and how we intentionally limited volunteering to prayer and prayer only during COVID-19. Um, so in part two, what I want to do is I want to talk about a couple more key stories that contribute to this sense of our church's passion to experience the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about how liturgy evolved during our micro gatherings. I want to talk about how I was shocked by our two prayer gatherings. And I even want to share with you my brief experience of healing. Lots of things to talk about today, so let's go. So something has changed over the last couple months, even in Frontier Church's liturgy. Now, the story of how a young church like Frontier decided to integrate confessional liturgy into our worship life, that's a it's a different story. That's a longer story. That would be its own two-part podcast. But when we launch, we launch with a definite confessional liturgical approach to worship. That's a lot of fancy religious language. Don't shut the podcast off yet, though. All, all that means is that somebody on Sunday mornings leads us through ancient prayers, and our church responds with ancient prayer in one unified voice in the prayer in the in the service. And that's, that's what's happening, by the way, between the worship songs on Sunday mornings. It's a beautiful expression of how we're one church with one Christ and one gospel. And it's also a helpful rhythm that helps a church of mostly young people get over our hyper-individualism and bind ourselves to one another and bind ourselves to the historical church. But I wanted to make one small tweak to our liturgy a few months ago. We were just coming out of quarantine. We were going to be gathering together for worship and micro gatherings, which were smaller groups so that we could respect social distancing for people, but still meet together in person. And so to me as a leader, it seemed like a low risk environment where we could like make some tweaks in our church's life to see what's more helpful. Plus, after our Holy Spirit sermon series, our church was hungry for prayer and hungry for the Holy Spirit. So instead of only having responses during our liturgy, I decided to leave some open space. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but the first time that we did this, I, I was leading liturgy and I remember feeling the Lord urge me to walk off stage and to lay a hand on somebody and to pray for them. So even though I was leading liturgy, I just decided to do that. And 30 seconds later, I came back in front of the microphone, looked around, and honestly, I almost I almost teared up. Family units were praying out loud to one another. Married couples were praying out loud with one another. Friends were praying aloud with one another. It wasn't just quiet time. It was awesome. And there's one theologian who once said, there's a difference between a church that prays 
and a praying church. Man, I felt the difference that morning. It wasn't just the people with microphones who were praying for the church. It wasn't just the pastor. It wasn't just the preacher praying for the church. The church was praying. And side note, that's why in our liturgy, our liturgy today, we actually have those contemplative times to pray. It's not for quiet time, though bless you if you choose to use it that way. It's because Sunday mornings aren't just times for pastors to pray. Sunday mornings are for the whole church to pray. That space for prayer is a time for you to pray with your family, to pray with a brother or to pray with a sister. And of course, like if you want to space out and waste that time, God still loves you. But the image I have of how to utilize and leverage that time, the image I have for contemplative prayer is the image of a boiling pot. You know what I'm saying? Like water that's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and it's starting to bubble over so that just when the word of God is preached, we're all white hot with passion and we get to passionately embrace Jesus Christ with faith. A boiling pot. And so after six weeks of micro gatherings, we were, we were getting geared up to go back to one service. But for me, these micro gatherings, they seemed like such an amazing opportunity to grow and to take risks and to mature and to deepen. And so even though our micro gatherings were coming to an end, I kind of sensed the Lord whispering to me. And the elders definitely came along and affirmed this, but I kind of sensed the Lord whispering to me, hey, stay in the crucible. Don't move too fast. Don't rush this before the church boils over. So here's what we decided to do as a church. Rather than just jumping back into church as normal right away, we decided to spend two Sunday mornings doing prayer services. Just prayer services. And we'd never done anything like this before, right? We're, we're reformed, we're a gospel-centered church, so we love spending Sunday mornings predictably preaching God's word, taking communion, singing in worship, and praying the liturgy. We have never spent a Sunday morning just praying. But man, I wanted our church to stay hungry for prayer. But still, I didn't know how it was going to go. Like, would people just feel like I was being lazy and didn't want to prepare a sermon? Or when we opened the microphone for prayer, what if nobody wanted to pray anything? Or what if somebody prayed something weird? Or worst of all, if you're a reformed church like us, what if somebody prayed something incorrect or erroneous? Gasp! But to all these questions, I just sensed the Lord gently responding, what if you didn't try to control that time? What if you just trusted me? It's a novel idea, right? And so we decided that we would sing a few worship songs, but then we would really just revolve the Sunday gathering, those two Sundays, around opening up the microphone and seeing what happened. 
But still, like I said, I'm totally used to just bringing a sermon manuscript with me on Sunday mornings. And I'm used to having a solid idea about the trajectory of what the service is going to look like. And I was giving up both of those things. But when our prayer services eventually came around, dude, they surprised me so much. First, I was shocked by how many people prayed. One of the services almost lasted two hours long. It's the longest church service we've ever had. I couldn't believe it. Person after person stepped up to the microphone, and when they prayed, they let it rip. And some of the prayers surprised me. Like, some of those people who are generally more reserved or timid, when they prayed publicly, they came out roaring like a lion. It was awesome. It was so cool to see, especially as a pastor. I came away thinking, man, you never really know a person until you've heard them pray. It's kind of like Paul and what Paul hints at in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, but let all things be done for building up. So the picture that Paul has of the church is not of one person coming to the church prepared to bless the church with a sermon, though that's important, and I love doing that. The picture Paul seems to have in his mind is a picture of everybody coming to the church, contributing and building up and blessing somehow. And the second thing that shocked me about our prayer gatherings was the unity of our prayers. After the service, I was talking with a few members and I shared how if you step back and looked at our prayer services from 100 feet in the air, way up, the prayer services really functioned like a constellation of stars. Everybody prayed in their own unique voice and with their own unique prayer that God gave them, but yet there was this interconnectedness among all the prayers that was really stunning. It almost seemed like everybody was kind of sort of praying the same thing. There were lots of prayers for church unity. So for me, I think this was a really obvious sign that God was among us, that God was knitting us together, that God was giving us one voice together. So things were happening in our church's life. Some really cool things. But there was one amazing experience with the Holy Spirit still ahead of me that would make me really confident about the direction of our church. So like I mentioned in part one, our sending church, Redeemer Church, is like, they're like, I think it's step or two ahead of us in learning how to hunger for the Holy Spirit corporately as a church. And a couple months ago, they decided to have a small men's conference for the dudes in their church. But the conference wouldn't just be six different teachings and a ton of breakout sessions and a lot of busyness and even more hurriedness. Instead, they basically decided to strip the conference down to almost exclusively worship. The point was to create as much time and as much space as possible to linger in the presence of the Holy Spirit and to ask the Holy Spirit to do awesome things. So I decided to invite the elders to come to the conference with me. And so a couple of us jumped in a van and we drove to Cedar Falls one weekend for this conference. And on the way over, we, I mean, 
you know the elder team. Like we joked and we messed with one another and we talked about everything like we always do. But one recurring conversation I kept bringing to the table was basically just me complaining about my neck pain. Six years ago, my life changed when I injured my neck. Most of you know this about me. I've had surgery and that alleviated a little bit of my pain and that was great. But those of you who know me well know that not a moment goes by that I don't experience some level of physical pain. So I was talking a little bit about this with the dudes on the drive over and I was being totally honest. I'm not going to pretty this up for you guys. I was angry with God and I was asking God why he made me this way. And of course, if you're a, a theologian, the worst part isn't that I don't know how to answer that question. The worst part is that I do know the answer to that question. Somehow, some way, in some measure, me following Jesus in the midst of chronic pain brings God maximum glory. It somehow brings God more glory than me simply following Jesus with no pain whatsoever. That's theologically true. But it's also frustrating. I'm glad that it brings God glory. Um, but that knowledge doesn't take the pain away. And so it just raises another question for me. What kind of God would glorify himself in the suffering of human beings like me? What kind of God would do that? And of course, the scripture has an answer to that question. The kind of God who glorifies himself in the suffering of human beings is the same God who reveals his true nature in the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, perfect logical consistency between the nature of reality and the content of the scriptures. Perfect logical consistency between the experience of my pain and the nature of the Christian scriptures. But still, as amazing as that is, it doesn't take away the pain. So later that night at the conference, while we were worshiping with Redeemer Church, the worship band decided to just continue to play late into the night. I, I think on the schedule, the worship session was technically supposed to be from like 7 to 8.30 p.m., but it was already 9 p.m. and the worship band just continued to hammer on and play more songs. And then one of my best friends from Cedar Falls, who's also an elder, his name's Michael Van Wordheisen. Michael came over to me in the middle of a worship song. And it's hard for me to retell this story because it's the type of story that I would dismiss five years ago. And it's a story that's kind of precious to me and I don't want it to be dismissed. And honestly, another reason why it's hard for me to retell this story is because it's hard to tell this story honestly without sounding over dramatic. So, uh, when I decided to record this podcast, I just decided to sweep away both of those concerns and just not be concerned with telling this story in a palatable, glossy way. I'm just going to tell the story truly. Michael came over in the middle of a worship song and he told me that he felt like the Holy Spirit was leading him to pray for my neck. And then he opened his prayer journal and he shared his prayer with me. God, who do you want me to pray for? And before he could even finish the question, my name popped into his head. 
Okay, God, what do you want me to tell Cole? Answer, that he is holy, righteous, and that I love him, and that he is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It was amazing hearing this from Michael. I know those things about myself. I know the Bible. But hearing a prophetic word from God come through somebody that I love is different. It almost had me in tears. It, it did have me in tears. There was just something deep down inside of me that needed to hear that. Of course I believe those things. And of course those things float around in my mind as true biblical data. But I needed to hear it come through the vocal cords of somebody I love who I know is walking in relationship with Jesus. So I was like breaking down while Michael was praying for me. And then Michael said, does this sound crazy to you? Cole, does the number four mean anything to you? And I was like, yeah, man. That's the disc that herniated and caused this entire mess in my neck. C4 disc. (laughs) And so Michael put his hand on me and he began to pray for healing. And at that moment, Joseph Donifro, Stephen Kerr, and Kent Young surrounded with me and they laid their hands on me in prayer. And the pain went away. And when you rarely experience relief over the course of six years of chronic pain, believe me when I tell you that you know the feeling of pain relief. And just after that, Stephen Kerr told me, hey, dude, I got to be honest with you. When we initially talked about this conference, um, Lauren and I, when we talked about it, we just decided that we were too busy and that that it wasn't a good decision for me to go to this conference. But, But later that night, in the middle of the night, I woke up in my bed. And it was clear to me that God was telling me that I needed to go to this conference because God was going to deepen your vision for this local church. He told me that. He told me that after Michael had laid a hand on me and prayed. And Kerr said, when I saw Michael lay his hand on you and start praying for you, there was this sense inside of me that said, it's happening. Like, this is why I'm here at this conference. Now, here's the thing, guys. The next day on Saturday, the pain in my neck came back. And still to this day, I experience neck pain. And it would be easy to simply chalk up that experience of pain relief as nothing more than brain chemicals being released as a result of feeling loved by other people who were laying their hands on me and praying for me. And even if it could be explained that way, I think that's still a miracle. And it'd also be easy to write off that night, even though it was just an experience of a couple hours, as a delusion, right? But months later, I'm certain that the Holy Spirit granted me a temporary experience of relief. Maybe in this lifetime, God will finally fully heal my neck, and I'm going to pray for that, and I'm not going to stop praying for that. But more than that, what I think happened that night is that God momentarily gave me a sneak peek into the new creation. 
the destination that's waiting for all of us where every tear will be wiped away, every pain taken away, and our resurrection bodies will be given to us and they will be full of pleasure and completely painless. What I think happened to me that night is that the Holy Spirit gave me the movie trailer, the the 60-second version of the full-length film that's waiting for me at the end of my life. So regardless of how you wrestle through that story, when you've experienced something like this, I'm telling you, you get hungrier for the Holy Spirit. And that's why I want Frontier Church to keep pressing into the Holy Spirit together. I don't want to just show up on Sunday mornings half-heartedly. I want to engage the Holy Spirit in singing and communion and liturgy and preaching, and I want to ask Him to do outrageous things. I don't want to just show up to community group half-heartedly. I want to come with a word from God that's prepared for somebody if God would so if God would be so loving to give me that. Like that moment I experienced with Michael. When the words of God, though I already knew them, came through a man of God that I loved and touched a trigger point in my life experientially, when you experience that, you want to be that type of vessel for the Holy Spirit for other people. So what about you guys? What about you, Frontier Church? Will you hunger for the Holy Spirit with us? So that's the end of part two of why we are so hungry for the Holy Spirit. But my prayer, guys, in telling you these stories is that you would know the narratives behind these little things that we're doing to press into the Spirit together, that you would see the reality and the stories behind why are we doing Saturdays in the Spirit? Why are we doing moments of contemplative prayer and liturgy? Why do we encourage our church members every Saturday night to ask God for a prophetic word for somebody on Sunday mornings? And it's because we believe that the Holy Spirit is real. And it's because in some sense, I have experienced some stuff in these last couple months and I want to fan that flame. So this isn't new theology, guys. This isn't about a new philosophy of ministry. This is about a renewed sense of hunger, and desperation for the Holy Spirit in every member at Frontier Church. A.W. Tozer once famously said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. Those churches who function like that have an expiration date. They will not survive the coming cultural storm. The pressure from the sexual revolution, the pressure from the political season is going to eat these churches alive. Every church that has built their organization around the organizing principle of lukewarm Christianity is going to collapse in the next 10 years. They're big now, but they're going to be empty coliseums, empty malls, abandoned malls in big cities. But A.W. Tozer goes on to say, but if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 
95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Those are the churches that are going to thrive in this coming season. Churches with that type of connection to the Holy Spirit. So guys, now more than ever, we will not make lukewarm Christianity the organizing principle of our local church. The organizing principle of our local church is the power of the Holy Spirit. So I love you guys. And I know that these stories are, I know these stories are challenging. But in telling them, I hope that it helps you worship local.